Welcome to the show today. Um, have a lot of stuff to talk about. Oh, the vaccine I got. Uh-oh, SpaghettiOs. They're pausing it. They're pausing the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. So I'll tell my story about it. Um, I know some of you guys listening live have heard it, but uh, i got to tell it for the YouTube folks now, too. Give the whole story. Um, I have a lot of stuff about farm policy today. Good news, potentially, about Afghanistan and Biden, um, if he follows through with what he's saying, then I give him nothing but credit. But we'll see. We'll see if he does. Uh, I have a new military budget, which unfortunately cuts in the other direction. It's way too large for no damn reason. We have um, Nancy Pelosi going after AOC. We have AOC. There's an article in Bloomberg discussing how Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is courting the establishment. Uh, not good. That's not good at all. And then the My Pillow guy yet again makes it into the show. I got John Boehner being called out by The View, of all places. Um, and later on in the show, if you want to have a little bit of funsies, we, I got some funsies for you. Later on in the show, 10 U.S. states ranked according to Americans. 10 U.S. states ranked according to Americans. I don't know about you, but I think that's pretty cool, and I think that's pretty interesting. Call me crazy. Okay, so without further ado, let's go ahead and get started. And uh, I will do that with my story about the vaccine. Did I jot anything down for this? Okay, yeah, here we go. Last week, uh, I got vaccinated and I got the Johnson & Johnson one-shot vaccine. Uh, Now, they just paused use of this vaccine, the CDC and the FDA did, and um, they say they need to review the evidence and review the data because some people have gotten blood clots from it. Now, before, you know, alarm bells go off in your head, the numbers, I think, tell the real story. So there's there's been a total of six cases of a rare kind of blood clot. And the total number of Johnson & Johnson vaccines that were given was 6.8 million. So we're talking about literally, you know, uh, one in a million. Or, you know, one in a million would be if it was 6 million. It's 6.8 million. So, you know, you do the math on the odds. But we're talking about one in a million, right? So that's uh, incredibly rare. Now, I'll tell you guys my story getting the vaccine, and then we'll get into more detail about um, why they're freezing it. So I went, it was, it was last Monday, 
um, I went and I had three people in my family working 24-7 around the clock trying to get me an appointment. Um, I also was trying to get myself an appointment. It was very difficult because New York opened up the vaccine to 30 people who are 30 and older. They, they opened it up to them, and then it was only like four or five days later that New York was going to open up to everybody. So you only had like this little window for 30-plus, and obviously a lot of people who are 30-plus were trying to get their hands on the vaccine. So um, I wasn't able to get an appointment. Um, my sister wasn't able to get me an appointment. My aunt wasn't able to get me an appointment, and they were trying. My mom was able to get me an appointment. Moms always save the day, right? Um, she woke up really early, went on, like, the CVS website, and just happened to be out of all the CVSs in the region, and there were a lot, there was one store that had appointments. And so um, she signed me up. She had, like, you know, my, my insurance information and all the stuff that they want. I gave it to all the people who were hunting for me. And um, she was able to schedule a vaccine for me for, it was, like, whatever, three or four days in the future at the time. So that's when she was able to schedule it. It was three or four days out. So um, I go to get the vaccine. It was a pretty smooth process. You know, you log in on your phone. You get a text message from CVS. You log in on your phone when you get there. Um, and then you wait on the line. And my appointment was scheduled for 3 o'clock. But I, I actually got the vaccine at, like, 3.30. So there was a line, and it was, you know, it was taking some time, understandably. Um, and you know, sat down, they did the vaccine, didn't, didn't really hurt, you know, maybe, maybe it was a little sore, the arm was a little sore, and uh, that was really the only symptom for the day. Now, I was told, and, and I read, that usually people start feeling symptoms about eight hours after you get the vaccine. Anybody who's going to experience symptoms, it's like eight hours later, you'll, you'll maybe feel something, and the symptoms vary. They're mild usually, and they don't last long, but it could be you know, you could feel like you have a fever, you feel like you have a headache, some people get nausea, um, you know, some people get a throat thing or whatever, but most of the people I talk to, they, if they were going to get symptoms, they developed them within eight hours. So anyway, eight hours passes, I feel totally fine, uh, you know, I go to sleep, wake up the next day, still feel totally fine, so I'm thinking, oh, sweet, I'm in the clear, uh, we're done here, it's over, I'm already vaccinated. To be considered fully vaccinated, you have to wait two weeks until after you get the vaccine. Um, that's according to what the government says. But, you know, I felt like I'm all set. I'm good. Um, but then, no, about 24 hours later, almost on the dot, um, I got a little bit of a headache, minor headache, and I got a little bit – I felt a little warm. You know, usually I like to keep – I'm relatively – I'm a relatively cold dude, no pun intended, but, like, I like to keep the temperature at, like, 60 – six degrees or 65 degrees um and it was at 72 and i was under the covers at that time so that's how i could tell my body temperature you know was higher than normal so i had a little bit of a fever a uh, little bit of a headache but i kid you not guys it only lasted three hours or four hours done uh felt right back normal again and here we are so here i am it's it's a little more than a week out since i got the vaccine and uh feel fine so I got that Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Now, let's get back to what happened with the blood clot situation. So there were issues with the AstraZeneca vaccine as well um, in Europe, and they say it's like the same issue, right? There's some tiny percentage of people. Now, I don't, they've given the vaccine to tens of millions of people, and about 200 have had this rare reaction. 
Well, we know about the people who had the reaction in the U.S. It's six people. All six are women age 18 to 48. One of them died. One of them is in the hospital in critical condition. And um, the others, I think, are made a recovery. And uh, they say it's a rare kind of blood clot. And one of the reasons why they're freezing it is because the CDC and the FDA wanted to give a heads up to physicians around the country that if you have young patients with blood clots, kind of blood clot that's rare, and usually the way you treat blood clots is with this anticoagulant called heparin. And for this particular kind of blood clot, heparin actually makes it worse. So that's one of the reasons why they're freezing it, to give doctors a heads up. And also they're going to see if there are maybe more cases that, that aren't reported yet to see really what percentage, how big of a problem is this really. So, again, in the U.K., they've given tens of millions of doses. About 200 people have had this problem. In the U.S., it's six people age 18 uh, to 48. And in the New York Times article on this, they say it could be linked to a low platelet count. So people who have a low platelet count who are women in that age. Or the other thing, like another reason they're freezing is they want to do an investigation to see if maybe it's because of maybe there's a link with all the people who had this reaction, maybe they're all taking some kind of medicine. Now, I'm just speculating here, we don't know this at all, but perhaps, you know, those six women who it happened to, maybe they were on some form of birth control and that, that has a bad reaction with the vaccine. So that, that's possible. Now, it's expected that they're only gonna freeze it for like a couple days or maybe a couple weeks, and they're gonna go right back to allowing the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, because again, if you're talking to one in a million, if you crunch the numbers, you're way more likely to get COVID and then die from COVID than you are to have some sort of adverse reaction to the vaccine. So I think they're really only going to freeze it for a little bit. But listen, keep it real, man. This is horrible press for the vaccines. And now you're going to have, you're giving more ammunition to the anti-vaxxers. And so they're going to, I think fewer people are going to get the vaccine now based on what they see happening here, because people are going to sort of misinterpret the data and overanalyze it. And um, I think that in the minds of the CDC and the FDA, they think that by temporarily pausing it and looking at the data, they're reassuring people that everything's okay. But I actually think the opposite reaction is going to happen. And we have data to prove that. So apparently the UK did not freeze the use of the AstraZeneca vaccine, and more people are getting it. And in other places in Europe, they did freeze the use of the AstraZeneca vaccine, and the numbers plummeted of people who want the AstraZeneca vaccine. So uh, listen, I'm not a medical expert, and so you got to leave it in the hands of the medical experts to make this stuff up and, and to determine what path to go. But uh, I do think there's a case that there's a little bit of an overreaction. And maybe I'm partially saying that because I took the bad boy vaccine. Somebody referred to, that, uh, referred to it as that on Twitter, and I thought it was hilarious. I got the bad boy vaccine that, you know, you might not be able to handle, no big deal. Um, I think it's only going to be for a few days or a few weeks, and then they're going to, you know, uh, go back to it. So some of the differences, by the way, so this is important to explain the differences between the vaccines. The, the Moderna vaccine and the Pfizer vaccine are what's called mRNA vaccines, which are a brand new technology. The government invested $500 million in mRNA uh, research and production for Moderna. And in fact, Trump bought doses before it was even created. And it was a gamble. It was a gamble because it's new technology. We didn't know if it worked. Turns out it worked. Worked phenomenally well. Uh, the, the vaccine that I got, the Johnson & Johnson one, and also the AstraZeneca one, uh, they are the traditional way of doing the vaccine, not the new technology, not the mRNA. Uh, it's the traditional vaccine, which basically the layman's explanation of it is that it's sort of like a dead virus that mimics the coronavirus. Um, it's called like an adenovirus. And so they take that, it's a dead virus, it mimics the coronavirus. 
they inject it into you, and then your immune system builds up immunity to that, which mimics COVID-19. And again, in clinical trials of 30,000 to 40,000 people, all of these vaccines are, whether it's the, and the other thing is the Johnson Johnson is one shot. Uh, the other ones are two. The mRNA ones are two shots. But in the clinical trials, they all work phenomenally well. And by the way, there's a little bit of misinformation out there or a misinterpretation out there of the way the vaccines work. So there's this number that the media was citing. They were saying that, you know, the, the, Pfizer, and the, John, uh, the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine are like 90 to 95% effective, right? That's what they were saying. And then, then they say the Johnson & Johnson one was only 66% effective. That's a complete misinterpretation of the data. The number that matters when it comes to vaccinations, it's hospitalizations and deaths. So if you get the vaccine and you get COVID, are you going to be hospitalized? So do you have a severe case or are you going to die? And um, every vaccine they tested, every one, is 100% effective against hospitalization and death. So in other words, nobody who got the vaccine in these trials of 30,000 to 40,000 people, nobody of any of the vaccines has been hospitalized or died. The 66% number and the 90 to 95% number, that just means that you could still have, um, you could still get COVID and have some symptoms, but, you know, after you get the vaccine, it's going to be more like you feel like you have a common cold, you know, the symptoms are going to be mild. And so, yes, there were more people in the Johnson & Johnson trial who had COVID and, and you know, had some symptoms, but none of them were hospitalized and none of them died. So that's why the vaccine was approved, because it's 100% effective against hospitalization and death, just like the mRNA ones, just like the Pfizer one, just like the Moderna one. And the other thing is, I didn't know this, but I saw a great piece on Vox that gave you all the details on it. Apparently, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine was tested um, in part in Brazil during the peak of COVID with a new variant. And at the time when the Pfizer and the Moderna were tested was early on in the pandemic when it wasn't peaking and you didn't have the variants. So according to the experts on this, they think that if you had tested the Johnson & Johnson at the same time as the Pfizer and the Moderna, that you actually would have gotten the exact same results. So again, the most important number is protection from hospitalization and death. It's 100% protection from hospitalization and death with any of the vaccines. And that even includes, I think, uh, you know, the AstraZeneca one and whatever other ones might be out there. So that's why there's a little bit of misinformation. And I don't think the media does a great job of covering this stuff because when you, even when you read the headlines on the blood clot thing, it's, it's super misleading and it's super panicky and it makes people feel like, you know, whatever, there's a 50-50 chance if you get the vaccine, you're going to get blood clots. And that's just not true. So anyway, um, would I, I feel better that I got the vaccine before the news broke because you're only human and you're going to have an emotional reaction to the headlines no matter what, even if you read the articles and you get all the data. Um, so I'm happy I got the vaccine when I did. Um, if I was supposed to schedule to get the vaccine after this news came out, would I still go through with it? Yes, I would. I would. Because, again, when you read the specifics, one in a million, and I'm convinced there's some logical explanation as to why that is. And they say it could stem from low platelet count, and so the, the immune system of these particular people triggers that response. But they want to study a little further and get more hardcore answers. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I feel, I feel a little more edgy today, knowing that, again, as that hilarious Twitter commenter said, I got the bad boy vaccine. I got the bad boy vaccine, and uh, I also love the fact, I was sort of happy when I, 
when I just happened to get that one when we signed up for the appointment because I don't want to go for two appointments, bro. I don't. The one and done is so much easier, so much easier. And actually, I did feel a little better that uh, it was the original formula of how to do vaccines versus this new mRNA technology. Although, to be fair, the mRNA has proven, you know, to be perfectly safe in clinical trials. So anyway, there you have it. I don't think this is going to last long, but I guess I'll ask you guys. Number one, are you going to get vaccinated? Because there's plenty of people who don't want to do that. So number one, are you going to get vaccinated? And then number two, if you are going to get vaccinated, um, does this make you prefer now the, the Pfizer or the Moderna over the Johnson & Johnson? So that's my question for you guys. Or are you so lazy and do you prefer convenience so much that you'll still say, no, I just, just give me the one shot, give me the one and done, and we'll call it a day. So I'll leave that up to all you guys. I'm curious what you have to say about it, but there you have it. I got the bad boy vaccine. Thankfully, I didn't get blood clots, and um, now they've frozen it. Now they've paused it, but I do think they'll bring it back relatively soon. Okay. Next. All right, so we have some surprising news some potentially very good news. Let me show you what broke. This is in USA Today. President Joe Biden plans to pull all military forces out of Afghanistan by September 11th, ending U.S. presence in the Middle Eastern nation by the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks that spurred America's longest war. The move will extend military presence in Afghanistan beyond the May 1st withdrawal date previously negotiated by former President Donald Trump. Concluding there is no military solution for the problems in Afghanistan, Biden will instead work to put the full weight of the U.S. government beyond diplomatic efforts to reach a peace agreement between the Taliban and Afghan government, a senior administration official said. Quote, but what we will not do is use our troops as bargaining chips in that process, said the official who agreed to brief reporters on the plans Tuesday on the condition of anonymity. Biden will formally announce the withdrawal and other specifics in a White House speech Wednesday detailing the way forward in Afghanistan Press Secretary Jen Psaki said. So um, there's a few things to say about this. Number one, pushing back that May 1st deadline, is that good? My answer is no, no. So what he's saying is I need more time. So instead of May, it's going to be September. So he's extending the war. I mean, that's one way you could have phrased this and one way you could have put the headline is that Biden's extending the war and moving away from Trump's May 1st deadline. However, having said that, Trump's withdrawal wasn't a withdrawal withdrawal. It was a bullshit withdrawal because he wanted to keep some troops on the ground. So I don't like where people get this idea from that it's fair to describe that as a withdrawal. It's obviously not. If you're staying there, that's the definition of not withdrawing. Now, yes, they yo-yo the troop levels and they bring them up and bring them down and bring them up and bring them down, but you're still there. So I think it's super misleading when people call that what Trump did a withdrawal. It wasn't a withdrawal. So right now we have 2,500 troops there. Um, there's, by the way, 
7,000 or so of our allies' troops are there. So, I mean, you have almost 10,000 troops there right now, which is ridiculous. And so I don't like that Biden pushed back the deadline, but according to every article on this, and I hope it's true, have my doubts, but I hope it's true, they say when Biden wants to get out September 11th, he actually wants to get rid of every troop there. So the bad thing is pushing back the deadline. The good thing is, apparently, according to everything I've read on this, he actually wants to take all the troops out. That would be phenomenal. That would be amazing. That would be wonderful. I would give him a lot of credit if he actually does it. Now, having said that, man, I don't know if they're going to do it because we've been burned before. Every time one of these stories comes out, like, oh, they're going to end the war in Iraq or war in Afghanistan. People dig up, like there's old tweets from State of the Union addresses where, or, or there's one from when Obama was live tweeting um, a DNC speech, I think, from Joe Biden, and Joe Biden said something like, we're going to be out of Afghanistan by 2014, period. And you got the president tweeting that, you know, basically encouraging it, saying like, that's what we're going to do. We're going to get out by 2014. Really? How'd that go? You didn't. You said we were going to fully withdraw. You committed to fully withdrawing, and then you didn't fully withdraw. Trump said a million times we're going to get out, and then he didn't get out. So Obama said we're going to get out, he didn't get out. Trump said we're going to get out, we didn't get out. Biden, who was part of the Obama administration when they didn't get out, now he's saying we're totally going to fully get out. Bottom line is, man, I will believe it when I see it. So I don't want to, like, I don't want to be too doom and gloom in this segment because you know, it is possible that at some point we do fully get out. But I also don't want to give you false hope, as in, like, the fact that he's saying this means it's actually going to happen, because they've said we're going to fully get out previously, and we didn't fully get out. There was even a time when the media ran stories as if we did, quote, silently withdraw from Afghanistan fully. That was another thing I saw on Twitter, these old articles from back then, from back in, like, 2014 or whatever, that were saying, that's it, we're out. We declared victory and we're out. And we, that wasn't true. So I'm very skeptical. But you want to know what gives me a little bit of hope? Here's what gives me a little bit of hope. The reaction to this from the establishment. They are losing their shit. They are, they've gone crazy. They really have. And it's not just Republicans. And it is Republicans, but not just Republicans. It's not just, you know intelligence agencies or the deep state or the military, although, again, it's them too. It's also Democratic senators. Menendez was like, oh, I don't think I like this. Shaheen was like, this is a bad idea. And so the fact that this is getting backlash from Republicans, from the military, and from Democrats leads me to believe maybe it's real. Maybe they know something that I don't. Maybe, you know, they could tell that Biden's serious about getting out. And they're, of course, you know, going out there like the loyal puppets and servants they are of the military industrial complex and saying, whoa, 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 whoa. And by the way, the disingenuous framing is killing me. We covered this the other day, but now the argument is like, what about the women of Afghanistan? What about women's rights? What about women's rights? We have allied with warlords in Afghanistan, warlords who have child sex slaves. That's on the record. Yeah, what about women's rights? Tell me. We're not there to protect them. Not even close. 
not remotely close. So, I mean, it's just so shameless. So shameless, it's obviously not the reason that we're there. So anyway, but if he pulls pull through with this and does it, I give him massive credit, and that will be part of his legacy that's positive. If he actually withdraws every troop from the Middle East, it's positive. And he'll go down in history for that in a positive way. And I'll, I'll give him massive credit. I will tell you this, though. This is a real test of strength of character and principle and backbone. Because you know what's going to happen when he does it, or if it's clear he's going to do it. We're already starting to see the beginning of it, but they're going to they're gonna hit him with everything. So here's a prediction. There's going to be a media report about an inevitable terror attack or something if the United States leaves. They're plotting a new attack. This is what they're going to say. Some anonymous intelligence agency goon or some anom- uh, you know, anonymous Pentagon person, commander, general, whatever, somebody's going to whisper in the ear of the mainstream media, oh, we have this big scoop that we want to give you. And the big scoop is going to be, if we withdraw, there's going to be a terror attack. And so we can't withdraw. Hear me now, quote me later. So that's going to happen. Um, and the other thing that's going to happen is there will be extra media criticism and scrutiny if he pulls out any little thing that happens in Afghanistan, they're going to cover it with their hair on fire and say, this happened because we left. So if the Taliban takes over a town or if there's some sort of shooting or if there's some sort of bombing, or they'll immediately write about it, hair on fire, say this is unacceptable, and say this is happening because Biden pulled out. And so the implication is we've got to go back in. What are you going to do? We have to go back in. Look at what's going on. The sense of urgency, and again, this is because the media is largely, they're puppets of the establishment, including the military-industrial complex, and so whatever intelligence agencies say to them, they're just going to run with it uncritically and report it as if it's news and report the framing as if it's the only framing, you know? So that's what's going to happen. I'm telling you in advance, this is before any of that's happening, I'm telling you that's going to happen because the military-industrial complex and the deep state made their mind up, they want us to permanently be there. They want us to permanently be there. And so they're going to do anything they can to bring that about. And if Biden gets in the way of those plans, they'll go after Biden in this kind of way and make it seem like it was a disastrous decision, even though it would be an overwhelmingly popular decision if Joe Biden were to do that. So I don't know how else to say it other than I really, really, really hope that he follows through doesn't back down and doesn't buckle to the terrible arguments and the propaganda and everything. So I guess tentatively we'll give him credit and then we'll cross the bridge when we come to it and hopefully he follows through. Do I have a prediction? No. I'll just say the same thing I said when it was Trump and he said we're going to get out and then he didn't. Or when he said we're going to get out, I, I said credit to him. Let's see what happens. So I'll say the same thing about Biden. Credit to him, but let's see what happens. And I wouldn't be surprised if he doesn't actually get out. I'd be disappointed and pissed, but I wouldn't be surprised. But you never know. There's also a possibility he really has had enough and he's getting out. So we'll see, man. Fingers crossed.
Okay, next. It's become pretty clear that the squad and many of the Justice Democrats have decided, let's try to play the inside game and get our win that way. I've been warning against this for as long as I can remember because it never works. It's not going to work. And um, if they think they could out Machiavellian maneuver Nancy Pelosi, you got another thing coming. And uh, at the same time, they're trying desperately to go along to get along and get their crumbs and their wins when they can. Look at what Nancy Pelosi is doing. Pelosi mocked AOC in childlike voice while hitting out at the squad for attention-grabbing new book claims. Mocked AOC in a childlike voice. She thinks, oh, they're just attention grabbers. So early on, if you guys remember, when AOC, like, first got there, she joined protesters in Pelosi's office. I think they were protesters who were from the Sunrise Movement, and I think they were fighting for a Green New Deal, and they wanted her commitment to to fight for that, meaning Pelosi's, and AOC joined them. AOC joined them. And so ever since that moment... Pelosi has had nothing but sneering disdain for Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. So this new book that uh, Nancy Pelosi is writing is actually, I think it was originally from an interview. There's this writer who did 10 interviews with Pelosi and sort of transcribed it and added some stuff. And so this is, the, this is where we learn this information from. This is a little snippet that came out. According to the interviewer, she said, quote, Anger at the four new progressive congresswomen was palpable. So when she brought up Rashida Tlaib, Ilhan Omar, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and others in, you know, the left flank of the party in Congress, the anger was palpable. Apparently, Pelosi said to AOC, quote, you're not a one-person show. This is the Congress of the United States of America. So that, that's Pelosi saying, know your role and shut your mouth and fall in line. So Pelosi doesn't like that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has a colossal Twitter following and doesn't like that she's developed power in a unique way that this previous generation of politicians doesn't grasp, doesn't understand, they're totally clueless about. They've had workshops where AOC tries to teach other Democratic politicians how to go viral, how to have a bigger Twitter following, how to get people to actually like you. And I think that threatens Pelosi. She feels like I can't corral her like I want to. So, like, it's so much easier to corral the other Democrats, and AOC's more of a challenge, and she resents that because it it threatens her power. The other thing is having that many regular followers – means she sort of has breaking free from the donor network in the sense that she doesn't need corporate money. She doesn't need billionaire money. She doesn't need PAC money. She doesn't need the good old boys and girls club. She can raise money through small dollar donations. That threatens Pelosi's power. Because one of the ways Pelosi keeps other Congress people in line is to dangle over their heads the fact that she can raise them money enough to win their next election. She has the donor connects. She can follow through for them. So for Pelosi, it's all about power and control. And she feels like AOC threatens 
her total grip on power and her control. But I got good news for Nancy Pelosi. No, she doesn't. She's actively chosen to do the opposite, to work with you, to try to get crumbs where she can behind the scenes and not cause a fight, raise a stink. She's actively chosen that path, and we're actually going to get to a story on that in just a little bit. That uh, it's very intentional. I think it's the exact wrong strategy. It's not going to work. It's completely dumb. But that's what she's chosen. And so look at, I mean, this is, it's so amazing to watch this unfold. It's a worst-case scenario. Because look at the dynamic of their relationship. What's the dynamic of their relationship? The dynamic is Nancy Pelosi despises all the Justice Democrats, despises them with a burning passion. She openly mocks them, makes fun of them, tells them to shut up and fall in line, to understand the institution and the hierarchy and the way everything's supposed to work. And on top of Pelosi being corrupt, being wrong on policy, and despising people to her left, everybody to her left does what? Falls in line, tries to get on her good side, wants to work within the system and color within the lines. And so uh, it's embarrassing. It's at the point where it's embarrassing. It is. It's embarrassing. So, you know, I want, like, the point of doing the segment is, on the one hand, I want to defend Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez from Nancy Pelosi's snide, bitchy attack. I want to say, like, who the fuck do you think you are? Think you're queen of the universe? You think you're so special? You think you're above disagreement? So I want to go after Pelosi for saying what she said. But... I'd be defending AOC as AOC lays out in a chalk outline of herself on the ground. AOC is not defending AOC. She's basically like, okay, mommy, I'm sorry that you're mad at me. She literally called her mama bear. But, I mean, really the sentiment is like, I'm sorry that you're mad at me. Let me try to make up for it. One of the things AOC did, and we covered the story, is that she donated to a lot of centrist Democrats in swing districts against Republicans. But, listen, there's got to be some sort of a punishment if these people don't support the policies that we put them there to support, they don't support, a, a, you know, whatever it might be, living wage, Medicare for all, free college, ending the wars. If they don't support those things, then you shouldn't be donating to them. I mean, that's obvious, right? That's a no-brainer. There has to be a carrot-and-stick approach across the board where if somebody's with your agenda, they get support. If they're against your agenda, they don't. I mean, again, I, I think this stuff is relatively obvious. Apparently it's not. Apparently it's not. They're playing the inside game. And even with them falling in line, sucking up, trying to get on the good side of leadership, this is the result. This is the backlash. You think Pelosi hesitated to put this in there, felt weird about it, felt bad about it? She loves it. She loves the idea of publicly punishing people to her left. She loves it. Fall in line, know your role, respect the institution and the hierarchy. I'm here because I paid my dues. You haven't paid your dues yet. You're just a rabble rouser, and you make noise, and you get in the way of real serious governing. And the response is, yes, Mama Bear. I'm sorry, Mama Bear. That's not why we sent you there, AOC. So Pelosi's showing her true colors here, for sure, as a wretched demon trying to keep the corrupt status quo in place. 
but also AOC showing her true colors. Because there ain't going to be dick of backlash from her on this. Not, not even a peep. Because, again, time and time again she showed her instinct is to avoid the fight. Like when she was snubbed for a committee assignment, what did she do? She didn't call out any of the people who turned on her publicly. None of it. She didn't say, they blocked me. The reason they blocked me is because I supported primary opponents against them. So I'm getting punished because I care about policies over personalities. This is the corrupt way Washington works. Instead of saying that publicly, when she was snubbed for a committee assignment that she was supposed to be a lock for, she put her tail between her legs and went home and said nothing about it, and then tried to fall in line for the establishment to get them to like her that way, even though they're never going to like her, so that she can climb through the party and get little crumbs of victories wherever she can. Ugh, so frustrating, beyond frustrating, and I'm incredibly disappointed. All right, next. Okay, unfortunately, you know, I got to pound the gavel on this one, man. I got to pound the gavel. I think that this is uh, maybe the most devastating story yet that I've seen about the squad, and it brings me no pleasure to talk about it. But this is an article that was originally in Bloomberg. Look at what they say. Leading progressives like Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez had a choice after they won an election in 2018 and expanded their ranks in 2020. Challenge Democratic leaders from the sidelines or get in the game. Now their decision to play by Congress's rules is giving them clout in a government under unified Democratic control with President Joe Biden. Members of Representative Ocasio-Cortez's so-called squad are taking leadership roles in the House and building experience on Capitol Hill turning them into not just ideological purists, but also strategic legislators. They're gently pushing a bolder Democratic strategy and meeting regularly with White House aides, bringing liberal dreams like a $15 federal minimum wage and a permanent child tax credit within reach. Rather than starting a rival group within the Democratic Party, far-left members are joining and taking leadership positions in the 95-member Congressional Progressive Caucus that's been around for three decades. Minnesota Representative Ilhan Omar, uh, also elected in 2018, now leads the CPC's vote-counting team. This is a different approach than the Tea Party Republicans took after they were elected in 2010 at the midpoint of the first Obama term, term. Instead, they challenged GOP leadership and spurned the existing conservative Republican study committee to start the Freedom Caucus and draw a starker ideological line. That last part breaks my heart. It breaks my heart. The original name, the working name for Justice Democrats when, we, when I co-founded it, was the Left Tea Party. Now, we eventually settled on Justice Democrats, but the actual idea in its genesis, let's create a Left Tea Party. The whole point was to get a bunch of them elected, get a block, send them to D.C., and have them act exactly like the Tea Party. The Tea Party took on John Boehner and hated John Boehner just as much as they hated Barack Obama. And they made John Boehner's life a living hell because they wouldn't fall in line until they got their way. That is exactly what we wanted Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ilhan Omar, and all the Justice Democrats to do. And here's an article in Bloomberg saying, they're now behind the scenes saying, we're not going to do that. They had the opportunity and the ability to create a caucus within the Congressional Progressive Caucus, a Justice Democrats caucus, where you get 12 lawmakers and you vote as a block. 
You vote as a block and say, no, we're going to block legislation from Biden unless and until he includes some of our priorities. Here are our demands. That's what we want. That's not too much to ask for. In fact, that's the bare minimum of what to ask for. That's the bare minimum of what we expect from you. But they're promising to do the opposite of that. So here's another piece from the Hill. Look at the highlighted portion. But notably, the Progressive Caucus didn't draw any red lines in contrast to three House Democrats from high-tax blue states. So in other words, what's being explained here is um, you have these more centrist Democrats, right-wing Democrats, if we're being honest, who are saying, hey, we're not going to vote for any Biden package on infrastructure or taxes unless they um, bring back this tax cut for wealthy people in blue states, the SALT tax. So Trump got rid of the state and local tax deduction, which means the way it works is when you pay federal taxes, when you pay state taxes in a blue state, you used to be able to deduct the amount you paid in state taxes from your federal taxes. And ultimately it ends up being, you know, that ended up being a giant tax cut for wealthy people in blue states. Trump got rid of that. And then now Democrats are saying, no, 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 we want to bring back the tax break for wealthy people in blue states. And you have Democrats saying, I'll take, centrist Democrats saying, I'll take whatever Biden puts in front of me if he doesn't include this. So forget it. Infrastructure, gone. Don't care. Not going to vote for it. Um, raising taxes on the wealthy in other ways, like the marginal rate or raising the corporate tax. Gone. I'm not going to support it unless you do this thing for me. They are saying openly, here's our red line, bitch. Try me. That's what the right-wing Democrats are doing. The Congressional Progressive Caucus, you ready for this? So what they released, they outlined five priorities for the infrastructure debate. Here's what they say. We want universal access to child care, as well as paid family leave and paid medical leave, investments in public housing and renewable energy, lowering drug prices, and outlining a pathway to citizenship for, for certain immigrants. So they list a number of things there. And those things sound lovely, right? Don't those things sound great? None of them have said, and they're red lines, or two of them are red lines. None of them have said that. In fact, they're saying the exact opposite. They're not drawing any red lines publicly. They might be saying it behind the scenes. Oh, here's our red lines. But what's going to happen when Biden tells you to go take a hike, like he did with the $15 minimum wage and like he did with the $2,000 check? What's going to happen? I'll tell you what's going to happen. Nothing. Nothing's going to happen. They're going to say, okay, yes, sir. I'm sorry, sir. You want to know why? Because they are, they're not their own faction of a Justice Democrats caucus where 12 of them hold the line and force things into bills, which, by the way, is the way that works. The Tea Party got a lot of their priorities passed because of this approach. Joe Manchin always gets what he wants because of this approach. But they're not going to do that. They're, instead of the Justice Democrats Caucus, they're part of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, and the Congressional Progressive Caucus is making no demands. Why is it every time there's a policy debate, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema and six to eight Senate Democrats who are right-wing, they always draw red lines. I'm not voting for it unless X, Y, and Z. And then Biden goes, all right, fine, I'll give you X, Y, and Z. And then the progressives, don't do anything equal and opposite. They don't say, no, 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 enough, 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 enough. I, we demand this. They never do it. And so we never get their priorities. We never get the priorities. Everybody's praising Joe Biden because the price tag was big on his, you know, on the COVID relief bill. None of the stuff is recurring. It's a one shot of adrenaline. Didn't have the $2,000 check. Didn't have the $15 minimum wage. 
didn't have the permanent child tax credit, which would have been something that actually lasts and stands and creates a legacy, didn't have any of that stuff. And the, you have the, the left flank of the Democratic Party cheerleading the bill when their whole job is supposed to be to make the bill better and put in our priorities. They're not putting in our priorities. They're not drawing any red lines publicly, any. And you've had Bernie Sanders and you've had AOC both publicly say there's a lot going on behind the scenes that you guys don't know about. Well, that's the fucking problem. Is it behind the scenes? There's no public pressure. The only tool you have is public pressure because the public agrees with you on your priorities. They agree with you on $15 minimum wage. They agree with you on everything listed here. Are you kidding me? The public would love universal child care and paid family and medical leave and investments in public housing. These are all wildly popular. None of, the, none of the people in the corrupt establishment are going to support these things because they care more about appeasing their donors than representing the will of the American people. The only way you win is to draw red lines and throw your weight around and rally the public on your side. That's the only way you win. You have to be willing to make enemies within the Democratic Party and force your agenda on them. Joe Manchin does it all the fucking time, and it works. You guys never do it, ever, ever, ever. It's embarrassing. It's pathetic. It's literally the exact opposite of the reason we sent you there. And again, I'm in a unique position to say these things. I co-founded the fucking group. I know what the whole point of the group was. And they have massively strayed from the mission. I don't want to hear excuses anymore. I don't want to hear excuses. If you're not going to fight for a $15 minimum wage, and you didn't, and you didn't, oh, but I did it behind the scenes. And how'd that fucking work out? It didn't work out. I'm not going to give you a fucking A for effort. I care about actually getting the $15 minimum wage. So are you going to draw red lines or are you not going to draw red lines? Are you going to take on your own party leadership or are you not going to take on your own party leadership? And the answer is they're not going to draw a red line. They're not going to take on their own party leadership. And they're going to fucking declare victory as if they fucking won some shit. You didn't win anything because you drew no red lines and you didn't take on leadership because you care more about going along to get along, taking your crumbs whenever you can get them, and now climbing through the ranks of the party. Congratulations on being like every other fucking politician. Congratulations. God damn it, man, it's so frustrating. You think I want to come out here and shit on the group that I co-founded? Is that something I want to do? Yeah, this thing which is like the defining feature of everything I've done in my life, the main thing I'm supposed to be most proud of. Yeah, I want to come out here and let everybody know they're not doing any of the things that they're supposed to. Yeah, I want to do that. How fucking dense do you have to be? How dumb do you have to be to believe that? This doesn't make me happy. This makes me miserable. It makes me feel like we fucked up from day one. And we did, because the fact of the matter is, my stupid assumption was, as long as I get people in D.C. who agree with me and us on the policies, well, then it'll all work out. Because we finally have people there who truly believe in Medicare for All and free college and a living wage and ending the wars and a Green New Deal and legalizing marijuana. I was wrong. Because it's not just about believing in those things. It's about having the correct strategy to get them implemented and willing to take the fight on and have people hate you in the establishment and in the media. So yes, Democratic leadership is going to hate you if you fight them. The media is going to hate you for taking on Democratic leadership because they're beholden to corporate Democrats. But, you know, I don't know, man. Maybe it's super rare, but very few people are comfortable with taking on that fight. It seemed like the Tea Party was perfectly comfortable doing it. They knew why they were sent there. But people on the left, they don't want to take that fight on. They want the media to love them. They want Democratic leadership to love them. They want everybody to love them all the time, and uh, they end up totally being ineffective as a result of that.
No red lines. Funny. The centrists and the right-wingers always have red lines. Always. And then they get what they want. You never have red lines, and you never get what you want. Can you believe being, Can you imagine being so naive at this late date to think that any sort of behind-the-scenes negotiation is going to work for the left? <laughs> the dumbest, that's the dumbest idea I've ever heard in my life. There's 100% of the evidence cuts against that theory, but you still have Bernie and AOC and everybody saying it with a straight face. Yeah, no, we're, we're working on it behind the scenes. Don't worry. We're, we're being very sincere and genuine in our conversations with corrupt, elitist ghouls who are totally bought and owned by corporate America. We're, we're having very productive conversations with these people, and maybe something will come from it. Embarrassing. All right, next. So John Boehner has a new book out, and uh, he's doing a media tour. He's been on all the various outlets. Uh, Surprisingly, one of the best questions he's got comes from The View. So here's a View host who's calling out John Boehner to his face. Talking about crazies, throughout this book, you describe how your party has been taken over by kooks and lunatics who, uh, quote, want to blow up Washington. And you say you were the mayor of, quote, crazy town. Now your party has uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who blamed uh, Jewish space lasers for wildfires in its big tents, along with Lauren Boebert, Matt Gates. Is there a way really to rehabilitate the party and considering, in all fairness, that you did your fair share of backing some of their Tea Party uh, predecessors uh, when you were in office, do you feel that you were perhaps part of the problem? Well, listen, the American people uh, send people to Washington on both sides of the aisle. Some of them are Republicans, some are Democrats. Some are traditional Republicans like me, some traditional Democrats. They also send uh, people who are there just to create chaos for their own political benefit on the far left and the far right. I didn't get these people elected. Uh, the American people set up there. And, uh, you know, as the leader uh, in the House for five years, uh, my job was to try to mobilize the majority party uh, into doing things that would help uh, the American people, help American government. And uh, there were some people who were always getting in the way. And I should say that of the members of Congress on both sides of the aisle are really good, decent people trying to do the right thing for the American people every day. Uh, But there's the fringe in both parties uh, that make it difficult for the leaders, frankly, to lead. And these days, I think uh, both parties are being held hostage by the loudest voices in their party. And so uh, it's a very difficult time uh, to govern. Uh, And the last thing I'm going to do is to make it more difficult uh, for those who are trying to lead to do their job. So asked if he's responsible or partly responsible for the rise of the Tea Party, he says, bro, there's like crazy people on the left and there's like crazy people on the right. And so like, you know, it's pretty equally bad on both sides and 90% of the members of Congress are good people. And it's just the 10% far right and the far left that are crazy. 
So in other words, he totally dodges, doesn't answer the question, does a full false equivalence. Um, John Boehner played footsies with birtherism. He first shunned it and was like, no, the state of Hawaii says, he's from, says Obama was born there, and I have no reason to doubt the state of Hawaii. And then after he got backlash from that, he started playing footsies with birtherism to try to appease them. Don't tell me when you feed a delusion like that, a stupid, dumb conspiracy theory, bigoted one at that, so it's like, oh, the first black president obviously is not American. That's where that stems from, right? Um, don't tell me that you didn't feed this stuff. There's a very famous story about John Boehner. Um, he was handing out checks from big tobacco companies on the floor of the house. That is like the definition of corruption. They should have a picture of this guy's face in the dictionary by the word corruption. That's what that is. And so I really have, I have no sympathy for him. Now, John Boehner's taken on fights recently with Ted Cruz. Um, he's taken on fights with a lot of the Tea Party types. Um, but Boehner even says, yeah, I voted for Trump in 2016. I voted for Trump in 2020. I vote, you know, Republican down ticket. So make no mistake about it, guys. The only reason he's against them is for petty personal reasons. So, like, yeah, the Tea Party made his life difficult, and so he hates the Tea Party. Ted Cruz made his life difficult, and so he hates Ted Cruz. But, like, it has nothing to do with substance. Nothing. Nothing to do with policy. Nothing at all. Because, actually, he agrees with these people completely on policy. And so I hate this new breed, this new variety of Republican that comes out there and acts like, I'm not like those crazy Republicans. I'm one of the good Republicans who will push for the exact same policies as the crazy Republicans. There is no difference. The only difference is mainstream media now welcomes these equally terrible traditional Republicans with open arms. That's the difference. The difference is uh, you've successfully gotten back into the mainstream of society by saying, hey, Trump did some questionable things like egged on the insurrection, and the Tea Party's a little bit crazy. Little things like that, and all of a sudden the media, you know, comes themselves and they can't stop giving you fawning coverage. But credit for this difficult question, because it was a difficult question. And so um, he is a, an embodiment of the deep corruption of Washington. And when he says 90% of, of members of Congress are good people, I'm sure they are good people, but they're institutionally corrupt, and that's the problem. And so there's a reason why Congress always has like a 20% approval rating, because everybody knows they're not representing the will of the American people. But this guy wants to blame it on just the fringes and wants to act like the far right and the far left are equally crazy, and they're re the real problem. Because when us adults were governing, when me and Obama were like cutting deals, I mean, obviously it was good for the American people. No, it wasn't. You were trying to cut Social Security and cut Medicare, and you were continuing wars and doing shit like that. And I mean, it just is not good for the American people. So basically this segment is like a lunatic Republican complains about lunatic Republicans. That's what this is. So I have no sympathy. You shouldn't have any sympathy either. Everything, him calling out any other Republicans is just petty personal beefs. It has nothing to do with policy. And so... He's still, to his core, deeply corrupt, and he is part of the problem, if not the main problem, because it is the corruption and the status quo that led to the rise of people on the far right, but also people on the so-called far left, which is just social Democrats who are right about stuff. It's the corruption of Washington and people like Boehner that led to people saying, I'll try anything else. Fuck, give me the crazy person is even better than this. So look in the mirror, dippy.
Okay. Do one more before we take a break. And it's going to be the My Pillow Guy. The My Pillow Guy is having a rough one. He uh, was so hardcore pro Trump that he went balls to the wall on stop the steal and fraudulent election. And he became like one of the most prominent public faces of that nonsense. And so, obviously, he was wrong. We, recently, we covered a story where he was like, no, Trump is going to be back in, August, back in office by August. Watch. I'm watching, Dippy. Not going to happen. Not even close. So anyway, um, he was kicked off Twitter, probably because of the rampant misinformation that he was spreading. Now, by the way, I don't even agree with Twitter on that. I don't agree with Twitter. Um, people are allowed to be total idiots and cranks. And if you want to kick them off because of that, you just simply are not a free and open platform. Like, you could have one or the other. You could kick people off who are crazy and, and do that, or you can believe in freedom of expression. So I don't agree with Twitter, but he's starting his own version of Twitter, his own social media outlet in response to it. And he calls it the free speech version of Twitter, the free speech social media outlet. But then we learned this. Now, people ask me, Eric, they said, what, how are you going to, how are you going to, you're going to let everything go, horn and swearing and everything? I said, absolutely not. And here's why. We have a thing we found in the Constitution and our, our founding fathers that defines what free speech is. And Eric, get this, our, this Judeo-Christian platform we're going to have here, it, it, they go by biblical principles. They, you know, they get to the Supreme Court, you have the Ten Commandments there. And we, you'll see our definement there. So in other words... You can't, uh, you're not going to have porn up there. You're not going to have these sites that, or sites that contain material that go against our Constitution, go against our, what our founding fathers put in there. It really defines what free speech is. For example, swearing is that you're not going to be able to swear. There will be four words for sure you can't say. You can't say the C word, the N word, the F word, and you can't use God's name in vain. What a concept, right? Wow. And, yeah, That's really puritanical. I like it. This is the funniest thing I've ever seen in my life. The whole point of the new outlet he's creating is for it to be the free speech outlet. And immediately we learn it's anti-free speech. No, listen, I'll say to you guys what I say to Twitter. If you, you could be the open platform or you could be the not open platform. You can't have it both ways. You can't kick people off for conspiracy theories and then turn around and say, but we believe in free expression. No, you literally don't believe in free expression. That's the definition of not believing in free expression. That's what that means, to not believe in free expression. So, I, it's like, how, how are you not grasping this incredibly simple concept? You can't start the, this new free speech platform, and then you find out, did we say free speech? What we meant was, you could say whatever you want, except no swearing, no porn, no taking the Lord's name in vain, and no cursing. Well, swearing and cursing is the same thing. You get the point. So you can't, you, it's, you're just nowhere near free. So you can't make an anti-religious point? That's not freedom of speech. Not being able to show porn. I mean, that is a restriction on freedom. Agree or disagree with it, that is a restriction on freedom. No cursing is definitely a restriction on freedom. And then, by the way, he totally, I don't know, I don't know if I want to call it a lie, because I think he might be dumb enough to believe what he's saying, but he totally misstates the Constitution, and he acts like the Constitution lays out biblical principles. No, it doesn't. 
the Constitution is very clear. We have a separation of church and state in this country. He makes it seem like the Constitution says, we believe in free speech except for cursing, porn, taking the Lord's name in vain, et cetera, et cetera. That's not what it says. So how are you, like, how are you making that up in your own mind that that's somehow the intent of the founding fathers? That wasn't the intent of the founding fathers. The language is pretty clear as day, actually. So, I mean, listen, the main point here is this. None of the idiots on the far right who claim to believe in free speech believe in free speech. None of them believe in free speech. Because how quickly do they flip? They flip so fast, so fast whenever, you know, they see something they don't like or they disagree with politically. You know, it reminds me of what was the thing that happened recently? The governor of um, one of the Dakotas, Christy Noam or whatever her name is, literally called for somebody to be canceled after saying repeatedly, oh, it was Lil, Lil Nas X, remember? He did the, the Satan shoe that supposedly had a drop of human blood in it. Um, the, her whole platform, she's been pushing this I'm against cancel culture thing relentlessly for months now, and then flips on a dime and says, I think we should cancel Lil Nas X for the thing he did with the Satan shoe. You define yourself as anti-cancel culture, and then the second you see something you dislike, you're immediately pro-cancel culture. None of these people understand what it means to actually have a principle. Like, have a principle and, regardless of partisan tribal considerations, apply it objectively. These people are all deeply unprincipled. It goes for all of them. You know, all the idiots on Fox News who yelp about cancel culture 24-7, the second they see something they dislike, they're like, cancel it. You know, listen, Antifa accounts were banned from Twitter, some large Antifa accounts. I didn't hear a single fucking word from anybody on the right that was like, I'm against this. They should bring back the Antifa accounts. Because, again, they just use it as a political weapon when it suits their own politics. They don't mean it. They don't mean it sincerely. They're not actually going to be staunch defenders of free speech when there's suppression of speech on the left when they come after Antifa, when they come after Marxists, you know? They're simply not going to defend people on the left. And they're also clearly, they're not going to defend the free speech to curse or post something raunchy or take the Lord's name in vain. So in other words, he's creating like a deeply authoritarian and theocratic version of Twitter. So it's going to be a worse version of Twitter. It's going to be even, there's going to be even less free speech on that platform than there is on Twitter. Because Twitter is somewhat authoritarian, I think, because they do take things down, you know, or, or ban people for things they shouldn't be banned for, so on and so forth. But at least they're not a theocracy. And he wants to make this a theocratic and authoritarian platform. So, God, they're so dumb. These people are so dumb. I'm astounded at how dumb they are. Okay. When we come back, Lindsey Graham and a bunch of Republicans go after Biden for the most reasonable thing he's ever done or said. So stay right there, guys. We will be right back with that and much, much more.
All right, bitch, we're back. And I just had my equivalent of breakfast, which was cold pizza. <laughs> that's a very that's a very Kyle breakfast, if I don't say so myself. Um. Let's see, where are we going now? All right, so I got to come back to the war in Afghanistan and uh, the military and foreign policy. I'm going to give you some of the reaction from the right about Biden um, nominally deciding to end the war in Afghanistan. Okay, here we go. Here we go. Come on. So Joe Biden has announced that uh, he wants to fully end the war in Afghanistan by September 11th, the 20-year anniversary of 9-11. Now, the original deadline that Trump put in place was May 1st, so Biden is pushing that back. However, Trump's deadline wasn't really a deadline because they were going to still keep troops there, so it wasn't a full withdrawal. According to all the reports, Biden's going to do a full withdrawal by September 11th. Now, I'll believe it when I see it, because there's been a number of times that they've said they're going to do it, and they haven't done it already, meaning Obama said he was going to do it, didn't do it. Trump said he was going to do it, didn't do it. And now Biden's saying he's going to do it. We'll see if he actually follows through. Um, Again, I'll I'll reserve judgment on that front. But the response from the media and the response from the Republican establishment and elements of the Democratic establishment – has been absurd. Now, that's actually a good sign, by the way, because then they seem to think he really means it. So, and they're against that. They're against pulling out. So uh, let me tell you what Lindsey Graham said. This is in The Hill. Lindsey Graham slammed President Biden's plans to fully withdraw all troops from Afghanistan, calling the decision dumber than dirt and devilishly dangerous. Graham issued a statement hours after officials confirmed to The Hill and other news outlets that Biden is expected to announce Wednesday that all troops will be withdrawn from Afghanistan on the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 terrorist attacks that prompted the war. The new deadline, which pushes back the previous deadline of May 1st, was first reported by the Washington Post. Graham slammed Biden's move, saying he canceled an insurance policy against another 9-11. A full withdrawal from Afghanistan is dumber than dirt and devilishly dangerous. President Biden will have, in essence, canceled an insurance policy against another 9-11, Graham said in a statement. Um... A residual counterterrorism force would be an insurance policy against the rise of radical Islam in Afghanistan that could pave the way for another attack against our homeland and our allies. Oh, please, son. Oh, please. So let's, let's go through this. A full withdrawal is dumber than dirt. Why? How? How is it dumber than dirt? Please elaborate on that for me. We've been there for 20 years. The original reason we were told we had to go in was to get Osama bin Laden. Don't know if you noticed, son, he's been dead and gone for a long time. So even if I accept the framing that was put out there as to why we need to go in, mission accomplished. Fly the banner. Get the fuck home. Get home. Imagine calling it dumb 
to pull out of a 20-year war. Imagine calling that dumb. This isn't like we're fighting the Nazis. There is no direct threat to the United States of America, which leads to the next point. He says, President Biden will have, in essence, canceled an insurance policy against another 9-11. This is not an insurance policy against another 9-11. In fact, quite the opposite. You're more likely to breed further resentment, further backlash, and further blowback, to use the intelligence agency's terms, to then make us more of a target. And if you want an insurance policy against another 9-11, you know what you do? Stop arming and funding Saudi Arabia. Stop helping them carry out a genocide in Yemen. Stop arming jihadists on the ground in Syria. I mean, it's, it's really Lindsey Graham who's dumber than dirt because the fact of the matter is he supports arming and funding Saudi Arabia. He supports that. They're the ones who have spread radical Islam around the world. That Salafi mentality, that Wahhabi mentality. Lindsey Graham supports them. He probably supports having them on the UN Human Rights Council. Probably supports what's going on in Yemen, the blockade, the subsequent famine, us helping them do a genocide. He probably supports all that. So he wants us to arm and fund the biggest spread of radical Islam as he cries crocodile tears and acts like we need to stay in Afghanistan to prevent the rise of radical Islam. The best way to prevent the rise of radical Islam is to stop funding it and arming it. Stop intervening in Syria and helping moderate rebels on the ground who end up having ties to Al-Qaeda. I mean, these guys, they are so immensely full of shit. He's so immensely full of shit. And this is a guy who, he ran for president, by the way. I don't know if you remember that. He ran for president. It lasted like seven and a half minutes. And uh, he embarrassed himself. And he pretended like that never happened. One of the main things he was running on was let's continue these wars forever. I remember he did an interview. I think it was with CNBC. We covered it on the show. And somebody asked him point blank, like, when do you get out of these wars? And he said, very simply, you don't get out. You don't get out. You just stay there. Really, Lindsay? You stay there. This is at the time while our infrastructure is falling apart. You want to spend time rebuilding Kabul and Kandahar as opposed to Flint, Michigan, where they still don't have clean water. And you wonder why you lost the presidency in astounding fashion. You almost came in dead last out of all the options. Gee, I wonder why. Could it be because you want to send young American men and women to die and kill civilians in the Middle East? Could it be because you don't want to take care of our own problems here at home, fix our infrastructure? I mean, it's just, it's a sick joke. We have tens of millions of people without health insurance in a pandemic. And this guy would rather spend time and money in the Middle East in an endless war with no definition of victory. There's just no definition of victory. He just wants to stay there. Let's just stay there permanently. He doesn't, by the way, he doesn't even care that a lot of these wars that we're doing are against international law. You know, they're illegal invasions and occupations. And he says, tell the, tell the international community to take a hike with their rules and standards and laws and principles. So anyway, this makes me actually like Biden more. If, if Biden actually follows through and all the right people are getting mad at him, let me give you one more quote. Mitch McConnell said, foreign terrorists will not leave the U.S. alone simply because our politicians have grown tired of taking the to them. 
The president needs to explain to the American people how abandoning our partners and retreating in the face of the Taliban will make America safer. The Taliban is a guerrilla army in their own country. They don't do, they're not Al-Qaeda. They don't do international terrorist attacks. They are a guerrilla army in their own country. You are never going to defeat the Taliban in their own country. That's not possible. It's not a thing. And by the way, the Taliban controls more of Afghanistan today than they did when we invaded. What does that tell you? What does that tell you? All this time, all this effort, all this money, all the lives, and we have nothing to show for it, the exact opposite of what should have happened is what happened. So you inadvertently made the Taliban more powerful. Congratulations. And by the way, these people, Mitch McConnell, Lindsey Graham, have nothing to say about when we bombed a hospital and killed a bunch of civilians. That wasn't that long. It was like three years ago or something like that. Nothing to say about that. Nothing to say about that. They have nothing to say about the records of us arming, funding, and propping up warlords to counter the Taliban and it just so happens the warlords have child sex slaves. And then when our military people blew the whistle on it, they were discharged from the military. We need to stay there because, you know, we have to protect everybody and protect the women and whatnot. That's the new argument a lot of people are using. And so we got to protect them by, like, continuing to bomb hospitals and kill civilians and propping up child sex slave-owning warlords. The military-industrial complex is a scourge. This is rank imperialism is what it is. We don't have a right to be in these countries. It's unacceptable, man. It's unacceptable. And um, God, I hope Biden follows through. I really, really hope Biden follows through. We wasted trillions of dollars, so many lives, and we have absolutely nothing to show for it. And the real reason we're in Iraq has to do with oil and geopolitical control of the region. The reason we're in Afghanistan has to do with trillions of dollars worth of mineral wealth, opium, and control of the region, and uh, also just the military-industrial complex. Medley Butler said it, war's a racket. A lot of people get rich off of war, and so now war is an industry. War is a business. And there's a lot of corruption among the defense contractors that gives them the no-bid contracts that makes them want to keep the cycle of violence going. So here we are. Joe, don't listen to any of them. Pull through and do it. Okay, next. Here we go, here we go. So we discussed uh, a bunch of times that Biden has announced that he wants to pull out of Afghanistan fully by September 11th. That pushes back Trump's deadline, which was May 1st, but Trump wasn't actually going to withdraw all the troops. He was going to leave a residual force there. According to all the articles, Biden wants to fully withdraw on September 11th. Now, I don't like that he pushed back the timeline. I do like that we're talking about a full withdrawal, but I'll believe it when I see it because there's a million times they said we're going to end the war and then we just didn't end the war. So having said all that, we have another story here involving foreign policy that cuts in the other direction, which doesn't really jive with the story of him pulling out of Afghanistan. Uh, the Nation reports, Biden wants to spend even more on defense than Trump. The president's plan to hike Pentagon spending draws a rebuke from 
progressives. So Biden's proposing $715 billion for the Pentagon, $715 billion. To put that in perspective, that's an increase over Trump's $704 billion. So he wants to increase the military from Trump's levels. I mean, that's preposterous. We spend more than the next 12 biggest militaries combined, and most of them are our allies. And this is at a time when we have a pandemic and a depression. And you want to spend all this money on the military? Why? For what? What's the point? Because of corruption. Because, you know, it, Biden's Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, I think that's his name, took over a million dollars from sitting on the board of Raytheon, and now he's advising Biden on foreign policy. Gee, I wonder what position he's going to take. Is he going to be anti-war or is he going to be pro-war? So there's a lot of corruption going on here. There's a lot of say from the likes of Raytheon and Boeing and Honeywell and you know all, uh, Lockheed Martin and all the other so-called defense contractors. And you have an increase in the military budget. I mean, that strikes me as beyond ridiculous. $12 billion more dollars for weapons of war. I mean, this is, this is our welfare in this country is warfare. We've built an economy on war. And we have jobs tied to the military-industrial complex in all 50 states. And so now, even under presidents who are nominally supposed to be more anti-war, clearly not. Listen, I hope he pulls out of Afghanistan. I hope that that's true. But we'll have to wait and see. And also, what are you doing here? What are you doing? Think about how if we cut the military, we could cut it 50% and still have the biggest military in the world by far, by far. Think about what we could do with all that money. It's just, it's beyond absurd. So um, to put this in perspective for you, Data for Progress surveyed voters all across the country last year about budget priorities. Get this, 56% support cutting the Pentagon budget by 10% to pay for fighting the coronavirus pandemic and funding education, healthcare, and housing. Uh, 69% of Democrats expressed enthusiasm for that. Um, Even 51% of Republicans said, yeah, cut the military 10%, use that to fund other priorities. Even the Republicans are saying that. We have a government that's so utterly disconnected from the will of the people, and we see it across the board. It's not just on foreign policy stuff. By the way, the war in Afghanistan is more unpopular than the Vietnam War at the height of its unpopularity at this point. It's only it's like 20% or something ridiculously low. It might even be in the teens, 13%, 19%, something like that. But it's across the board. 80% of people want to raise the minimum wage. We haven't raised the minimum wage. You know, um, Nearly 70% of people want to legalize marijuana at the federal level. We're not legalizing marijuana at the federal level. The list goes on and on. Of all the things where the people line up on one side and the government does the opposite. This is one of those things, man. All this money for endless war, this colossal bloated military budget, at the same time, we have 80% of the country living paycheck to paycheck. Half of workers making $30,000 a year or less. We have uh, tens of millions without health insurance. We have people desperately needing childcare. That's another thing that should be universal. Universal childcare would be wonderful. Uh, Many other developed countries have that. Instead, this is what we spend our money on. This is what we do. So Biden wants an even bigger military budget than Donald Trump. 
beyond pathetic, beyond pathetic. It should at least be $100 billion less. It should at least be from $705 billion to $605 billion, but no. Centrist Joe, right-wing Democrat, moderate Republican Joe, shows his true colors again. All right, next. Accidentally played that. All right, here we go. I think we may have stumbled across the Biden administration's biggest lie yet. And that says a lot. He's told some big ones, that guy. So um, you guys know about what's going on in Yemen and what Saudi Arabia is doing there. They're blockading the country. They're preventing food and medicine from getting in. They're on the brink of famine. There's so many people can die as a result of this. We've seen the videos from inside those hospitals with the emaciated children who are dying as a result of lack of food and nutrition. And it's a really terrible situation. Now, this is all preventable. Saudi Arabia is doing this on purpose. They're blockading the country, and they're trying to starve out the government. So what happened a while ago is there was a Sunni government. It was replaced by a Shia government that took it over by force. There was a a coup. They took it over by force. And um, Saudi Arabia wasn't going to stand for that. They don't want Shia Houthis on their doorstep, so they decided we're going to try to topple the government, put the Sunni leader back in. That has resulted in a brutal crackdown and brutal bombing campaign. You have mosques, um, schools, open-air hospitals, or excuse me, open-air markets and hospitals. All these have been bombed. And by the way, people in Yemen see that the weapons are from the United States of America. We have aided them in this bombing campaign, in this effective genocide. Um, Now, Biden has been an incredibly weaselly politician on this issue. So he came out and said, we're no longer going to help Saudi Arabia with their bombing, which everybody hailed as, gee, that's wonderful because they're bombing these targets which shouldn't be bombed and we don't like what they're doing. And well, come to find out, uh, he wasn't really telling the truth. What he said after that is, oh, what I meant was we're not going to help them offensively bomb, but if it's defensive, we'll help with that. Well, guess what? Saudi Arabia is just going to say, all the bombing we do is defensive by definition, and we're going to go right along with it. And that's exactly what's happened. So, totally weaselly, you know, with the Trump administration, their policy was like, yeah, we're going to help them massacre civilians, and we're fine doing that, and we're going to say it. With Biden, it's like, no, we're good people, and we're not going to do that. We're going to do it, but we're going to say we're not doing it by pretending we're not bombing anymore, even though we are bombing defensively, just not offensively, even though there is no difference, because they're just going to say everything's defensive. Anyway. Here's what happened now. This is from Adam Johnson. He says, under pressure from activists and congressional Dems to force Saudi Arabia to lift the blockade in Yemen, the Biden State Department strategy is to simply deny there's a blockade. This despite Saudi Arabia casually talking about the blockade all the time, and there obviously being one. So they literally said, when pushed on this and pressured on this, they say, I don't know, there's not even a blockade. 
So instead of forcing Saudi Arabia to lift the blockade and save tens of thousands or maybe even hundreds of thousands of lives, they're just like, we're not going to pressure them because there isn't even a blockade. I give you the Biden administration. Here it is. Here it is. These things piss me off more than you can imagine because this is the wolf in sheep's clothing stuff where they continue the same policy as Trump, but then they pretend to be holier than thou, more moral. And they just end up lying in this instance. This is like the other, the, the Weasley stuff around the executive orders. I think this is the worst because it involves like a literal famine and genocide and blockade. But it's like when they said, oh, the headlines were like, Biden's banning private prisons. Then you read and you find out it's only for the Department of Homeland Security and they only have like 6% of the private prisons or something like that. And so most of the private prisons are staying open. About 60% of the ICE facilities are private prisons. Those are staying open. It's just, let me do the bare minimum. Biden's looking to eliminate student debt. He's eliminating $1 billion of it out of $1.6 trillion. And the $1 billion is just from scam for-profit colleges. So he's eliminating less than 1% of student loan debt. And the headlines were like, Biden looks to eliminate student debt. Bullshit. Buy American executive order. Biden wants to reinvigorate American manufacturing. Signing a Buy American executive order. You read the details, and the thing doesn't have any fucking teeth. And it's actually not the executive order that we all wanted, which was mandate that everything the federal government buy has to be made in the United States of America. He's not doing that. He's doing a Weasley thing like Trump. Trump said he was going to sign that executive order. Then he did a Buy America week where it was just like highlighting American-made products at the White House or some shit. It was all symbolic garbage. Here we are. This is what they do. This is wolf in sheep's clothing all day long, pretending, oh, we're going to hold Saudi Arabia accountable by releasing a report about how they killed Khashoggi. Okay, then what are you going to do about it? Nothing. Well, you do nothing. What message did you just send Saudi Arabia? If you don't like certain journalists coming after you, you can kill them. And there's going to be no consequences. Doesn't matter. Go ahead and kill them. Because there was no consequences for Jamal Khashoggi. None. We're going to hold Saudi Arabia accountable. We're going to not help them bomb anymore. We're going to not aid them in their genocide. But did I say that? What I meant was, what happened was, the sun was in my eyes, and me and Craig and them was down by the Safeway, and then what we did is we started bombing defensively, but really they say everything is defensively, so we're just going to continue helping them bomb. Blockade? No blockade? No, no, no blockade. This is the Biden administration's actual response. This is their actual response. It is unbelievable. Next. We are going to go. Let's talk about raising taxes on the rich. This story is phenomenal. Um, I love it because it just is such a verification of everything we've been saying, not only on this topic, but on other topic, topics for years now. So this is in Axios. Take a look. The top pollster for Joe Biden's presidential campaign is advising the White House to do something that often makes Democrats nervous. Talk loudly and proudly about raising taxes on the rich. John Anzalone, Anzalone, Anzalone tells Axios his extensive polling and research has found that few issues 
receive broader support than raising taxes on corporations and people earning more than $400,000 a year. Anzalone's view, which he pushed during the campaign, which the new president's inner circle seems to chair, is that Biden should go on the offense on tax hikes. He should make raising taxes on the wealthy and corporations a standout feature of his messaging rather than a necessary evil to fund his $3 trillion-plus spending plans, Anzalone argues. This could immunize Biden from GOP attacks, boost his popularity, and help congressional Democrats, he says. Democrats in general are afraid of the tax issue, and we let the Republicans brand us as wanting to raise middle-class taxes, Anzalone tells Axios. So this is incredible. I love this because this is an expert saying, hey, idiots, I crunched the numbers. I did the polling. We have the research. This isn't an up-in-the-air thing. People love the idea of raising taxes on the rich. Why are you not bragging about it? Why are you not going on the offense? Why are you not tarring the Republicans with being the defenders of the billionaire class and the corporations? This is what you need to do. Instead, what Biden's doing is he's talking about his infrastructure slash, slash tax bill, which is one and the same. They put it in the same package. And they're saying, oh, to fund it, we have to do some tax hikes on the wealthy. But we're not, like, happy about it or anything. We've got to do what we got to do. That's how they're talking about it. They're not highlighting and stressing this part of the package. And here you have a pollster who's saying, what are you doing if you brag about that, if you fight on that, if you go on the offense over that, you're going to, it's going to be great. It's going to be wonderful. It's going to pay off. Your numbers are going to go up. Your, your popularity is going to go up. People are going to support this bill even more. So here are the numbers. Two-thirds of Americans, 67%, support raising taxes on those making $400,000 or more. 67%. That's including, get this, 70% of independents and nearly half of Republicans and people who lean Republican. Everybody wants this, bro. Everybody wants this. And the Democrats are not even talking about it. Or when they do, they frame it as like, I don't know what happened to my stapler, but I'm going to make sure that I have my stapler. And it's not something I want to do, raise taxes on the rich, but I guess I'll raise taxes on the rich a little bit, and then maybe I'll grab my stapler. But please don't attack me on the taxes. And he's right that what happens, you turn on Fox News, and they will just flat out lie relentlessly about what Biden's plans are and say, he wants to raise taxes, he wants to raise taxes, he wants to take more of your money, he wants the government to take more of your money. They imply, if not outright say, he's coming for, uh, you know, more money from working class people. That is fundamentally not true. He doesn't raise a penny of new taxes on people who make less than $400,000 a year. Not a penny. So instead of going on the offense, framing the debate and the discussion as they want, they don't say anything. And then if they say anything, they're just getting attacked by Republicans and they're on defense. They're such idiots, man. So the reason this is such an important story is because take this story and apply it to every fucking issue, son. Every fucking issue. Everyone. Everyone. See, this is what, I, this is what I'm talking about, guys. In the modern era, we're biased by our recent elections, and everybody thinks no matter what happens, the country is going to relatively be split 50-50 along partisan lines. It is what it is. There's no escaping it. What are you going to do? 
No matter what, the elections are going to be somewhat close. Furthest, biggest you'll get is 45% to 55%, right? And even that's big. Um, and you're going to, maybe the most you get is, a, is somebody in the Electoral College gets like 300 electoral votes roughly. And there are no such thing as the big blowouts anymore. That is nonsense. The problem is nobody's run a campaign that would facilitate a blowout. If you actually have the ability to win elections in a blowout fashion, look at what FDR did. Look at what even Ronald Reagan did. I don't agree with Reagan's politics, but he did win in a blowout election. And we can do that today. You just need somebody who knows what they're doing politically. And now the pollsters are finally, they're fed up with Democrats being so dumb This isn't just good on policy. He's saying this is good politics, you jackasses. But take this issue and apply it to everything. Why are you not bragging about fighting to raise taxes on corporations and fighting to raise taxes on billionaires and fighting to raise taxes on the wealthy? Everybody agrees with you. Everybody wants that. Why are you not pushing relentlessly and bragging relentlessly about the $15 minimum wage? And we're for the solution, and it's the Republicans who are against the solution. But, by the way, you have to go against your own fucking right-wing Democrats, too, to make them fall in line, like Manchin and Cinema, who are not in favor of this. But if you're Joe Biden and you say you're for the $15 minimum wage, fight on that, fight on that, fight on that. And the worst thing, for the love of God, you go out there and you take the fight on. Don't let Lindsey Graham, as he did, say, oh, this is dumber than dirt and dangerous and whatever. Go on the offense. Are you kidding me? We've been there 20 years. Osama bin Laden is dead in Iraq. Saddam Hussein is dead. Why are we still there? What's the definition of victory? Why are we wasting so much money there when we have crumbling infrastructure here at home? What are you talking about? You just want to stay there forever? You just want to permanently occupy the entire fucking world? Go on the offense. For the love of God, go on the offense. If you believe in something, fight for it. And they're not fighting, which leads you to believe they don't really believe in it too much. I think, I think the reason why Biden's acting like this is because he does view it as a necessary evil. I don't want to raise taxes, but I guess I got to raise taxes on the wealthy a little bit. I think that's how he views it, because he's really like a moderate Republican. He's a right-wing Democrat. So, but that's the problem. They're saying, this expert is saying, this pollster is saying, you would help yourself massively. You would help yourself massively if you, for once in your life, went on the offense and you tarred the Republicans and made their unpopular position stick to them. But they're not going to do it. All right, we're going to have a funny... Funny and interesting story here now. This is something a little different that we wouldn't normally do, but I like it, so we're going to do it. Let's have a little bit of fun, guys. Um, There's a new YouGov poll that came out. It ranks the U.S. states according to Americans, and I want to show you the results. So um, the way this worked, respondents were asked to choose the better of two states from a list of the 50 states in Washington, D.C. in a series of head-to-head matchups. The figure shown is the percentage of times each state won their matchup. Okay? So do you understand the way that works? Um, the number one state, according to Americans, is Hawaii. And it's 69%. Nice. <laughs> 69%. Uh, say Hawaii is number one. Then we have Colorado, number two, 65%. Virginia, number three, 64%. Nevada, number four, 61%. North Carolina, number five, 61%. Florida, number six. I know a lot of people are going to hate that. Arizona, number seven at 60. New York, number eight. Yours truly, my home state, 59%. 
Georgia, number nine, 10%, or excuse me, Georgia, number nine, 58%. Texas, number 10, 58%. Um, and then we have Maine, California, Alaska, Vermont, Washington State, Oregon, Pennsylvania. This is 17. Um, then Montana, New Hampshire, Michigan. Michigan's number 20. Now, um, look, we're going to get back to some of this. I want to show you the other end, though. Dead last is the District of Columbia, 35%. Then you have Alabama is the actual last state, because obviously D.C. is not a state, but that's 38%. Mississippi, 38%. New Jersey, 39%. Um, Arkansas uh, gets 39%. They're number 47. Iowa, 46. Indiana, 45. South Dakota, 44. Missouri, 43. Kentucky, 42. So, all right. So, first of all, I actually think Kentucky's getting a pretty bad rap there, in my opinion. I don't know why Kentucky's ranked 42. Um, I, I think they're getting a bad rap. I think that's a, that's a lovely state. Um, and then I won't, I won't read through all of them, but there you get a sense of, of where we're at. Now, you know, I actually I feel a little weird talking about this because I haven't been to all 50 states, so I feel like I shouldn't really comment on the states I haven't been to. But I'm going to do exactly that because I'm an idiot. So, <laughs> so number one, Hawaii, even though I haven't been there, I kind of get it. I kind of get it. You know, it's just, it's so beautiful. It just looks, even, even if you look at Google image pictures of it, you're like, God damn it, that's so beautiful. God damn it, the sky is so blue. God damn it, everything looks so wonderful. So I sort of agree, or I definitely think Hawaii should be in the top five, you know. Colorado, number two. Even though it's not my cup of tea, Colorado, I sort of get it being up there. Because it does seem very lovely. And again, I've actually never been to Hawaii, and I've never been to Colorado. I've been to either one of them. But I do sort of understand where that comes from. Virginia, number three. I I love Virginia, but I'm not sure it's top five. I'm not sure it's top five. Uh, but it is really cool. There's a lot of historic stuff there. Um, so I get it, but not fully. Like, I would say maybe maybe around number 10 Virginia should be. But all right, three. People said three. Nevada. I love Nevada so much. I've actually been there a number of times. I love Las Vegas. It's just so beautiful. So I'm with people on that. Nevada, if anything, I might even put it higher than four. Eh, no, that's actually about right. North Carolina, I've been there. So gorgeous. Sort of agree with this being high up on the list. I don't know if it should really be top five or ten, but it should be high up on the list. Number six, Florida. Now all you guys are going to come after me here, but, man, I agree. Sorry. I know everybody – there's never been a thing that people who listen to this show have disagreed with me more than my Florida love. But here's the thing, man. Even if everything negative about it that you believe is totally true, the weather, dog, the weather, any, the idea of going somewhere in the middle of deep, dark, disgusting, frigid January or February, even December, December, January, February, when it's just miserable in the rest of the country, you could chill on a beach in Miami. It was 70 degrees and beautiful. On that alone, son, on that alone, it's definitely top 10. On that alone. But then, listen, keep it real, man. You got Disney, which is just literally heaven for children, right? Like that's, if, uh, look at a kid going to Disney and you've never seen pure joy more than that in your life. Now, Disney's not my cup of tea, but that is sort of like all of Orlando is like a playground for children that's not matched anywhere else in the country. So that, too, is sort of big. Beaches everywhere. Who doesn't love the beach? Um, for me, golf. 
I know you guys are, most of you are not golfers, and if anything, you mock golf. Some of you think it should be banned because you're terrible people. But that, like, that alone, you got me, dog. Like, you got me. I don't care about all, you know, a lot of backwards politics and asshole retirees and whatever. I don't care. I don't care. So take your Florida hate and shove it, okay? This is a Florida hate-free zone right here. So I sort of agree with it being high. Sorry, Arizona, I've been to once. I like Arizona a lot, but that's just because that's just my personal, like, I'm bi- I like deserts. I'm biased towards deserts because it's endless sunshine. So I like Arizona, but I sort of, I feel like that is more subjective than even Florida one. So I would say, even though I like it being high on the list, I think I would understand if it was more like around number 20 or something, you know. Um, New York, number eight. I'm from New York, so I'm biased on this front. But uh, I like that it's high on the list, but I actually think New York is a little overrated, to be honest with you. I really do. And everybody, oh, my God, New York City, the historic city. In my experience, New York is very similar to a lot of other big cities, you know. So I do feel like it's a little bit overrated, to be honest. So I'm not sure I'd put New York at number eight, but I am happy it's up there just because I am a New Yorker, you know. Um, Georgia, I think, is absolutely beautiful. I'm happy that's high up there. Um, Texas. Even though, um, you know, I'm a tried-and-true lefty man, Texas is sort of what's up. Like, I really like Texas. You know, I've been, I've been to Austin, and I've been to Dallas once when I was much younger. Um, I've never been to Houston. I've never been to San Antonio. But my experience with Texas has been phenomenal. And even though politically I'm not really in alignment with the state, I love Texas. So I like that it's in the top ten. I really do. Um, Maine, too cold. I wouldn't have that at number 11. Kick it back further. California, number 12. I'm going to have to say yes for it being that high, but only because it's so big and there's so much shit there, and there are certain parts of California that are amazing. But there's other also parts of California that I think are not good. So, But I'm okay with it at number 12. Um, I have a bias against the cold places, so Alaska at 13, not buying it. I would go further down the list. Um, but who got screwed the biggest here? Actually, I don't know who got screwed the biggest, but I could tell you who's way too high and doesn't belong there. Delaware is at number 32. When I will argue to the death that Delaware should be dead last. I think D.C. got a raw, raw deal here because on just like the sightseeing stuff alone, it's got to be higher than dead last. I'm not. I'm just not accepting DC dead last. DC should be in the top half, I think, in my opinion. Now, you guys might disagree. I know it's a it's a hellscape where there's demons li- that live there and everything's corrupt and it's terrible. But on sightseeing shit alone, that's in the top half. To have that dead last is a fucking crime. Um, but I think Delaware should be dead last. I think they're the worst state. They're a fake state. Just so you understand, Delaware is like the whole point of Delaware is for tax cheating. It's for corporations to cheat on their taxes. It's a tiny state. Nothing's there except, um, what's it called? Is it the DuPont people? It's DuPont or some chemical thing that gives everybody cancer. So there's endless cancer there and chemicals, and it's nothing but a corporate tax haven state. That's, it's a fake state. So Delaware should be dead last. I'm not accepting disagreement on this shit. That's a no-brainer. Delaware obviously should go last. Um, and it's at 32. I find that crazy. And I think 
I actually sort of think that um, Connecticut is too high on the list at 23. There's really nothing in Connecticut. That shit's got to be bottom half for sure. Hmm. Maryland, not a Maryland fan, and that's at 26. I think Utah sort of got screwed. They have Utah at 27. I think it should be higher. I think it should be top 20. I think we should probably cut this segment off now, but I could talk about this all fucking day, all fucking day, and leave it to me to have strong opinions, even with states that I've never been to. <laughs> um, I've been to maybe, if I had to guess how many states I've been to, probably 15 to 18, something like that. But yeah, we'll leave it at that. I'll let you guys fight in the comment section about where the states belong, but for sure, D.C. got screwed, Delaware is way too high, and uh, I sort of, I'm kind of roughly in agreement with people about the top 10, roughly in agreement. Like, there are changes I'd make, but I think the people sort of mostly got it right. Okay. Oh, I also think West Virginia got screwed. West Virginia is number 36. It has a charm to it. West Virginia has a charm to it. All right, anyway. Final story of the day, bitch. Bitch. A Trump policy is unfortunately being continued by Biden, and it's a terrible Trump policy, as most of them are. So The Intercept says, Biden looks to extend Trump's bolstered mandatory minimum drug sentencing. Over 100 advocacy groups sent a letter to Congress opposing the hardline anti-science policy, which applies to a broad range of fentanyl-related substances. Now, let's just be clear about this up front. Fentanyl is super dangerous. It's basically like a horse tranquilizer. It's like the most potent um, opiate or opioid that's out there. Honestly, I really don't even know. I guess they made it for like the most extreme cancer patients who are in terrible pain, but it really is a terrible substance. It can kill you with just a small amount. And so I'm not like, I want to make that point clear up front that fentanyl actually is terrible and dangerous and probably shouldn't even really exist. Um, But having said that, Yes, what he's doing is saying, let's do mandatory minimums for drug dealers who sell stuff that have anything, any trace amounts of fentanyl. So the current law imposes a five-year mandatory minimum. So if you're a drug dealer and you sell something that happens to have fentanyl in it, five-year mandatory minimum and 40-year maximum sentence. Now, they've been doing this, right? And prosecution of federal fentanyl offenses increased 4,000% between 2015 and 2019. 4,000%. 4,000%. So even though we're cracking down with the mandatory minimums, increase of 4,000%. You want to know why? Because this approach doesn't work. If your crackdown on fentanyl with mandatory minimums was going to work, why was there a 4,000% increase while the policy was in place? Because it has nothing to do with that. You're not deterring that from happening. Usually, when fentanyl is in heroin or in some other substance, it's cut with it because it was made on the black market. So, in other words, you're just exacerbating the problem further. 
if you really wanted to get rid of the overdose deaths from fentanyl, what you do is legalize, tax, and regulate drugs, and that people would be able to get a more reasonably powered opiate or opioid, and they wouldn't die from overdosing. By the way, guys, this is how Philip Seymour Hoffman allegedly died, is that he went and got heroin, and he took what would have been his normal dose of heroin, which he's done a million times before, but it was laced with fentanyl, and so he overdosed and he died. So fentanyl's a real problem, but the way you solve the problem is the exact opposite of what they're doing. If you throw the book at somebody and lock up a dealer who probably doesn't even know fentanyl's in his own shit, right, because these things are removed, there are multiple layers to this drug dealing stuff. If you do that, you're not disincentivizing it because people don't even know that it's in their thing. And so that's why there's been a massive increase in this stuff. The way you eliminate the fentanyl is legalizing, taxing, and regulating drugs. And so there'd be softer opioids that people could buy. And also what Dr. Carl Hart says, which is they have these facilities in a bunch of countries where if you get your drugs, you can go test the purity of it to make sure it's safe. Now, that sounds crazy, right? But that 100% would save lives. There's no doubt about it. No doubt about it at all. And if you have it legal, tax, and regulated, you also totally eliminate STD transmission and you destroy the black market. There's nothing better than destroying the black market, destroying the drug cartels, destroying the effective mafias, the, the, the gangs that are built up around this stuff. So, listen... Fentanyl is terrible, but the way you address it and the way you fix it is the opposite of what they're trying to do. It's just Mr. Crackdown hard on them. That's not, that already has shown zero positive effects, zero, because there's still fentanyl out there. People are still overdosing, and your mandatory minimum does nothing but destroys lives further. So what do you do? Get rid of the mandatory minimum, legalize tax and regulate drugs, have the testing centers for the purity to make sure that the stuff's okay. I mean, just legalizing, taxing, and regulating alone, you can guarantee – Quality. You can do quality controls as part of the regulation. This is a mess. And this is going to lead to more lives being ruined. And again, I want to reiterate this point because I think it's important. A lot of the people who are selling this don't even know that there's fentanyl in the stuff that they're selling because they're not the ones who directly cut it. So you get a low-level dealer from the street who's, you know, just probably has zero other opportunity in the place that they're living, and this is how they pay the bills. And then you take it and you lock them up for five years minimum, 40 years maximum, which is a horrendous policy that just further destroys lives. This is Joe Biden, Ryan Grimm said it best. This is Joe Biden acting like Joe Biden when it comes to the drug war. Just like he decided to spray the the glyphosate, the Roundup in Colombia now, which was an old school drug warrior uh, policy, which had terrible side effects to it. Just like he decided to double down on that, he's doubling down on this. Another one of the worst aspects of the drug war, which is mandatory minimums. To not give a judge discretion is to be literally anti-reason. If the judge is there, the judge is hearing the case and all the facts and all the details, and you want to say as an outsider who doesn't know the details of the case, I'm going to mandate that he has to spend at least five years in prison. Well, what if they're mitigating factors? What if there's nuance? You just want to gloss over it? And the answer is yes. He wants to throw the book at everybody. This is a guy... Correct me if I'm wrong, but Joe Biden advocated for a lot of drug dealers to get the death penalty. And remember his thing about banning raves? Like, he was a super big drug warrior, big-time drug warrior. And now you're seeing the effects of it. When this guy has the ability to legalize, tax, and regulate at the federal level like that, 
He could do it with weed. He could do it with anything. He could just change because the federal agencies come up with the scheduling of the drugs. So he could change them. He's the executive branch. He's the head of the executive branch. He could change them. Doesn't want to do it. He wants to continue the Trump policy, which is a devastating policy. All right, guys, we are done, baby. Love y'all. I'll talk to you soon. Um, got a good Crystal Kylan friends coming up this week. It'll be an interesting conversation. We have the author of the book called The Progressive Case Against Cancel Culture. Should be a very wide-ranging conversation that I think you'll enjoy. So anyway, I'll talk to all y'all soon. Have a good one. Peace.